This morning's reading is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, Leslie. I told you we were continuing pretty much as is, as we have our scripture reading today. Well, it's really good to be back in the pulpit with you today after a few weeks. My thanks to Jack Rance and Nick Coleman and Jim Lincoln, who did such a fantastic job preaching. We're so blessed to have uh, such great men to open the word with us. Uh, we didn't really lose anything uh, as I stepped away. Well, today we begin our new series, and we are calling it Love and Light for Life, a letter First John. We'll be looking at the short but not uh, insignificant letter through the month of May. It's been a great rest to my voice to limit my activities these past weeks, and I'm really hopeful going forward. Uh, knowing that God is doing something in me, even as I've walked with him and wrestled with him over these uh, past months. More on that uh, in a bit. So let's talk about this letter of 1 John. This letter we're going to be opening uh, by, uh, uh, by a way of introduction a bit. As we look today at the prologue, the first four verses we call the prologue of this letter. Have you ever listened to a great piece of music? or a great movie soundtrack, and ever noticed the reoccurring melodies, the reoccurring sound themes in that soundtrack, uh, the melody that repeats itself. Well, that's what the letter of 1 John is really like. It's different from Paul's letters that are linear and progress in ideas. 1 John is more circular, with overlapping themes that he revisits over and over again, themes of faith and obedience and, and love. And really, also, it serves this letter as a test for Christians by which you can know if you are a follower of Jesus, by which you can test the assurance of faith, we would call it. John even says it in chapter 5. You see the verse coming up. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that his purpose, that you may know that you have eternal life. So today, though, our big theme is joy. So let's look at it. What would it look like to live in complete joy? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, uh, John says complete joy so that my joy may be complete. What would that look like? And how do we get something like that? In the prologue to his letter, the Apostle John gives us really two keys we're going to look at today. Two keys to the joyful experience that every Christian can have. 
So hopefully you got your Bibles open. We I meant to send our notes this week. If we have to do this again next Sunday, uh, we will email out a link PDF to our notes, but you can jot and follow along, and the points will still be popping up behind me or on your screen, actually. Um, so let's take a look at these two um, keys. But first, let's look at the time of writing and purpose. A little more introduction on this letter. So this letter was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John, sometime around 85 to 90 A.D., uh, John was one of Jesus' original chosen 12 men who were his disciples, his apostles. This same John also wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 2nd and 3rd John, the, the two letters after this one. And he also wrote the book of Revelation, so a good portion of the New Testament. He wrote this letter to Christians in the church to, to assure them, to encourage them, to help them refine their theology, their doctrine, and, and strengthen their uh, devotional intensity to Jesus. Or to put it a different way, here's why he wrote it. Something was rattling them, and here's what it is. He wrote to a church who had lost fellowship with members to false teaching. The church was rattled. They were rattled. They'd been established as a church and then had gone through something of a split. There were false teachers in the church, and there were differing, contradictory opinions on who Jesus was, who he is, what he did, his work, his person. There were two main uh, heresies of their day. Here's, here, you'll see them coming up on the screen. Here were the two that rattled and split this church. The first was the Gnostics. You might uh, kind of uh, parallel them in some ways to the New Age movement of today. The Gnostics believed that the physical world was really only an illusion and only the spiritual was real and good. The other was the materialists. Only the physical is real to the materialist. The spiritual was just an illusion. This might be like many of our secularists today. Well, and I would say even too many Christians, actually, who think mostly in physical, material terms and forget about or are indifferent to the spiritual realm and world. So Gnostics, physical only an illusion, only spiritual is real. Materialists, only physical is real. The spiritual is an illusion. So the church was fracturing. Members were leaving. And I actually can't think of a more perfect letter for us in our time. There's a tendency for us in our age to look maybe at our shrinking uh, Christian cultural influence and maybe seeing church attendance numbers taking a hit, maybe amongst some of you in our younger generation, and there can be a tendency to become rattled. Or even as the world faces a virus that's causing much panic and fear, we can have, this letter tells us, a certainty of our fellowship with God. That's why it's a perfect letter for us right now. And, and John's letter is here. He wrote it not so much to prove those dissenters that we just talked about, those false teachers, as wrong, but to encourage the everyday believer to know that they know God and can know him deeply in fellowship. Here's that verse again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have 
eternal life. There's that certainty. There's that, that comfort and assurance. He says, I, I want you to be so certain of these things so that you can live a, a faithful, obedient, committed to Christ, loving life in the face of trial, in the face of abandonment, in the face of panic over viruses and life and death. So that when these trials come, yes, they're hard. Yes, we don't minimize them. And yes, we, we are not stoics who don't feel. We use wisdom and prudence as we put others ahead of ourselves because we know we know Jesus. That's what this letter is for. And as Christians, we're not Stoics. We should feel things deeper than anyone. As the Holy Spirit softens and tenderizes our heart. But we aren't hopeless. We have no need to fear. Even death. When we know Jesus and the joy he brings. He tells us in his prologue, as we take a look, about that joy, his primary purpose of this letter. He writes for the purpose of complete joy for the believer. If you got your Bibles, look at or listen to verse 4. We're starting at 4, and then we'll go back to 1 through 3. He says, And we are, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You might hear that and think, well, that's kind of strange. John is praying for his own joy? Is his motive just self-serving? Hey, I want to see you do good so I can just chill out and have joy. No, not at all. What John is saying here, actually, is that joy is communal. Joy is communal. Notice John's language in verses 1 through 4. It's all plural. We have heard. We have seen. We testify and proclaim. A fellowship with us. It's all plural pronouns there. John is acknowledging that Christian joy is experienced in hearts that are tied together. He's saying, I'm writing this to you so that as you grasp these truths as they make your, their way into your soul and transform you and give you joy, how could my joy not increase? We're tied together. He's saying, I can't be joyful unless you are too. And this is how joy is experienced in the community, the togetherness of the church. You know, the idea of individualistic Christianity is not possible. Hear me say that. It's not possible. If anything, we get from this, this theme here, the idea of joy increasing for someone who isolates and doesn't interact with God's people on a deep level, it's impossible. It's impossible. That's why what we're doing this morning even as we stream the service is it's not ideal and would never be sustainable long term. We have to gather. We have to be together. At best, what we're doing is a temporary compromise for this current situation. We have to grow. We have to gather, excuse me, we have to gather to grow in joy. 
It happens in community together. You know, the convenience of being on your couch right now while a great tool of technology this morning cannot replace the face-to-face fellowship of Christians and their joy. If you're Christian life, ask yourself this question. If it's isolated, or you would define it as, um, uh, as someone who doesn't really interact with God's people much, if that's how you would uh, define it, or maybe even just, hey, it's just me and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. And you might know a few people at church, but if that's as deep as you're willing to go, you will not grow and your joy will not increase. That's what John is getting at here. As the church's joy increases, so does his. It's tied together. This is John's purpose for the whole letter. Complete joy for you and I. But it raises a question. Is complete joy possible this side of heaven? It's an interesting question. Well, in one sense, we know our joy will be fuller when Jesus returns. We know that when we're in the new heaven and earth, which is why some commentators even say that John here, he's got to be speaking of a future state when joy is complete. I'm not so sure. On the other hand, Jesus and Paul in other places seem to be implying now. Joy is available now and even complete joy. Look what Jesus said in John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That sounds like complete, a fullness. Jesus is saying, as I think John is, that a joy that is unstoppable, that is, is constant, even in trials, is possible in the here and now. Why is that? Because it's joy that is drawn from somewhere else. It's it's joy that comes from something beneath the surface. We're going to say this about it. It's joy that's from a deep reservoir, a deep reservoir we can draw on. When I grew up in um, Orlando, Florida, for about a five-year span of my life, there was something we would love to do as kids. If you know uh, anything about the geology of Florida, you know that the entire state basically sits on top of water underneath it. And so as kids, what we love to do is we love to go outside and take our shovels and dig down and see how far we'd have to dig down before water would come up from the ground. It's pretty incredible. Uh, it was maybe 10 inches or so, you'd start to dig, and your hole would start filling with water from beneath the ground. Or I can also remember as a child in Florida going to swim in these natural springs as a kid, and you'd put on your goggles, and it was such clear, clean water, and you'd, go, you'd look down inside these natural springs that were coming up from the ground, and you could see down the cavern below, all the way down, sometimes really deep, and you could see where the water would be coming up. I mean, you just had to dig a little in Florida, 10 inches maybe, to get to something, a reservoir that was sitting underneath that ground. 
A Christian joy comes from somewhere deep in God, a, a reservoir. It's possible for a Christian to have a deep reservoir to draw on because of their relationship with Jesus and with God the Father. It's a type of joy that no one, no person, or any circumstance can snatch from you. They can't take it. Now, that doesn't mean, as Christians, we are um, psychologically unhealthy and just sing happy all the time. That's not what this joy means, and that was actually not a great song to sing, uh, because that's not the everyday experience of, our, of Christians. We shouldn't teach them that that's what it should be. That's not at all. But there is a certainty, a, a depth of relationship, a reservoir of joy that can be drawn from, pulled from, dug down into, even in the most terrible circumstances. That's what John is saying is available. That's what Jesus and Paul are saying is available. It's when someone says to the Christian, how, how are you keeping it together in this? How are you, how are you uh, holding it together? What's keeping you calm when everyone else is freaking out? Not, not that we're Stoics, let's be, let's be clear. Or why do you not seem as rattled as everyone else? That's the joy. That's what it does. That's what it gives you. You know, this virus has given us in this cultural historical moment, the perfect opportunity to express joy and not panic in the midst of some hard, who knows, even maybe terrible circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean we have an unwise, you know, hilarity or a, a grinning denial of reality. That's not what this means. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel things. In fact, think about Jesus. Think about him for a moment. He was an incredibly emotional guy. He was incredibly impacted by the suffering he saw in those he loved and the people and his people, the Jews. And he was always crying and mourning, wasn't he? And yet, would you ever say there was a, more of a manly man than Jesus, right? But he was always crying and mourning, yet always certain and full of joy. He was buoyed something deeper in his life. His Father, God. In the middle of your days of weeping, have you sensed that fresh spring water? That water keeping you afloat? Well, in fact, it's those times of trial when our outside sources of joy get stripped away that you realize, I'm not drawing on the reservoir as I should be. I'm not drawing on the deep resources of Christ that I have. When you take away daily comfort, comforts, it really quickly reveals where you're finding your joy. My recent health issues have caused me to look again at my intimacy with Jesus. You take away those daily comforts. You take away those daily external places you're finding joy, which are all good and of themselves, most of them. But a lot of times when you take them away, you find there's not much left. And it was when my prayers switched in these last couple 
few weeks from, God, take this away from me and switch to, God, help me glorify you in this trial. Help me find joy in you in this trial that a freshwater spring opened up. Now, praying like that doesn't take away immediate suffering. hasn't necessarily in my case. But gave me a renewed sense, sense of intimacy with Jesus. It's, it was digging down a little into the ground to see how low the water table was. I deepened my roots into Jesus and intimacy with Jesus. And that's where joy is found. If you go looking for joy, you'll never find it, actually. That's the irony. If you go looking for joy, you'll never find it. It always comes as the byproduct of something else. Here's what we're going to call it this morning. Joy is knowing you know God. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Or think about the Beatitudes. It doesn't say blessed. It doesn't say joyful is the one who searches for joy. It says joyful or blessed is the one who mourns, who's poor in spirit, who hungers after righteousness, after God, the meek. Joy comes in not just saying, I know Jesus, or just going after joy, but knowing that you know him, and actually pursuing knowing him deeper and deeper and deeper. He is the fresh spring that gives uh, gives, uh, relief to our parched and thirsty souls. Here's what he said John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. You could say this is joy, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You can't just get joy by going after joy. It comes from the deep reservoir. It comes from knowing God, and it comes from sinking your roots down into him. So how do you get it on a practical level? I want this joy to you. How do you get it? John gives us two keys in this passage. There are two things you have to have if you want this complete joy. So let's look at them on the second half of this message this morning. Here's the first one that you have to have. You've got to know the objective, true reality of who Jesus is, of Jesus' nature. You've got to know that. We said that John wrote this letter to encourage the church because they had lost fellowship with those who had had incorrect views of Jesus. In other words, Christianity, we could say, it stands or it falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. What you believe about him, in other words, is of utmost importance. Remember, John is one of the original 12 apostles that Jesus hand-picked out. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He saw him. He heard him. He ate with him. 
he even touched him. This is an incredible beginning or statement here in the beginning of this letter. In fact, I would say it's one of the top kind of openings to a letter next to maybe the Gospel of John and then Genesis, uh, beginning of Genesis 1. It's one of those kind of grand openings. It's an incredible statement. He's claiming an objective reality. He says, you know, don't you understand? I know you can't see Jesus now, but I did. I know you can't touch him, but I did, even after his resurrection. And because I did, John is saying, I am confident to proclaim to you that Jesus is fully God and fully man. John is claiming Jesus, verse 1, he says he was that which was in the beginning. And he claims in verse 2 that he is eternal life. He is God. There was never a time when he wasn't. He was in the beginning. Eternal life is a person. Jesus, found in him, John is getting at these ideas in verse 1 and 2. That's what John believed. But do you know that's what Jesus taught this about himself when he said this in John 8, 58? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, in the beginning, before Abraham was, I am. He was equating himself with Yahweh of Exodus 3.14, saying, I'm God. So to the materialists now, remember those two heresies, the materialists, this is just incredible. It's too hard to believe. I can believe Jesus is human, but God, eternal, from the beginning? But that's what John is saying, and that's what Jesus claimed. You have to start here. You want complete joy? You've got to start where John starts. He's God, but he's also truly human. He's also saying Jesus is truly human. I saw him. I touched him. I, I heard him. We beheld him. It's a perfect eyewitness credibility he's, he, is, he is claiming. For three years, I was with him. So now to the Gnostic now that thought material was bad and only the spiritual existed, this was offensive. Remember, matter is bad. There's only spirit. But here's the truth that John is claiming. It is both. Jesus is fully God. And Jesus is fully man. And to enter into complete joy, you have to start here. You hear that term, complete joy, maybe you're thinking, oh, I want that so badly. I would love to have that kind of, even though it's subjective, relational joy that comes from a deep relationship with God. Wouldn't you want that? I mean, even if you don't, you should. <laughs> a complete joy. You know what's great about Christianity? It has both. It has the objective truth and the subjective, you might even call it, mystical union of, of knowing God. It, Christianity and John here won't let it be either like a, a right brain or a left brain thing. Christianity has both. It has both. It has both an objective bank of truth, you might call it, that we draw on, but it's also got 
the subjective experience of knowing God. But you have to start here with who is Jesus in your life? What do you believe about him? I mean, John's making the case that it's the of utmost importance in your life, but it isn't everything. It isn't everything. Here's the second thing you need to have for complete joy. Not just the objective, but experiencing the subjective reality of fellowship with God through the church. You know, it's possible, especially, I would say, in the Western church, where we are, we're great on the dogmatic, we're great on the rational, we're great on the objective truth. It's possible to say you know Jesus and affirm the truths I just said, but not really know God. And it's possible for some of you listening today. I mean, I know him, you might say. But do you have fellowship with him? Listen to verse 3 or follow along. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, here's another purpose, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John wants us to have this fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. He wants us to have this fellowship with God through the church. It's, 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 it's relational friendship, fellowship, bond with a common, a common purpose, common set of beliefs, common relationship with God. He's saying, I want you to have this, this fellowship. It's possible to know Lots of things about God and not actually know him. It's possible. It's possible to say prayers and even speak to God and just be reciting a bunch of words. But here's the question. Do you commune with him? Do you fellowship with him? Is there an exchange between you and God? Is he guiding you? Convicting you, teaching you, counseling you, leading you, changing you. That's fellowship. Is there real relational fellowship and exchange between you and God? Think about that for a moment. Don't let that pass. Don't let that question just slip and slide away real quick off of your screen. Is there real fellowship? For some of you, maybe there isn't. And if you realize that today, that's a great thing to realize. Maybe it's you. I, I can say believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe, I believe he is who he says he is. But does that set your heart aflame? Does it give you deep internal joy? Does it change you from the inside out? Does that give you a joy that lets you look into the face of uh, even a dangerous virus and say, as Paul did, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain? Or is your Christianity more like your Costco membership, your Rotary Club, your book club? Is it more like that than a fellowshipping, following disciple of Jesus? Do you have fellowship with God? 
Well, let's unpack it for a moment, a bit more, to close, because this is what he says. I wrote this so you'd have fellowship with us, because our fellowship is with God the Father and Jesus. You might think, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian, but that kind of deep stuff that, you know, that, that might be like for the pastor or for the super serious Christian or one who's really serious about Jesus. But here's what John's saying. This fellowship is for all. This fellowship is for all who call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. This is for all of us. In fact, I would say um, having this fellowship, having both knowing Jesus but also this deep fellowship with him, objective and subjective, is the assurance you need to test your faith. Do you have both of these keys? He says, you know, it's for all. He says, we proclaim to you, he says. He's proclaiming to the church to have fellowship with John He's saying, you will be one who has fellowship with God. It's for every Christian, not just a super Christian, not just an elder, a pastor, or a leader in the church. It's for all. Remember the verse we read, this is eternal life. This is the joy that you know God. All. The fellowship's for all. Not just know about God, the objective truth, but that you subjectively know him, experience him, feed on him, draw on him as a reservoir. Both are necessary to be a Christian. Both. For true fellowship. It's for everyone. But here's the second thing for it. This fellowship is for all, but it's also for sharing. So what do we see in John here? We see what every Christian should have or what every Christian needs to have, or what every Christian should pursue if they see they don't have it. And what is that? One way to truly know and to test if you truly know God is to ask yourself, do you have the desire to share that with others? And have everyone else come to know the God that you have and know? Ask yourself that question. I mean, this is so, this is so countercultural to our individualized, kind of atomized, uh, don't push your beliefs on me culture. But this is what John is doing. He's saying, I've experienced Jesus. I know him. And because of that, I want you to have that same joy and fellowship. Yeah, I understand. You think about our, our church and those of you watching today. I understand Different personalities. Some of us are just wired a little more extrovert and don't have a problem sharing our faith and talking. We talk more naturally about that. Some are more introverted, and that's harder for. But if you say, you know, I just don't like to talk about my faith, then maybe you need to examine how much that faith has actually moved from your head to your heart and how much you are really experiencing true joy that has to overflow, that wants to overflow. I read one pastor this week who said, if you don't have a deep, intense desire, desperate desire for others to know God, he's pretty straightforward. He said, you don't know God. He went on to say, because anyone who's tasted this experience feels a burden that others would share it too and find that joy. 
As John is saying, fellowship with me as I fellowship with God. I've been examining this in myself this week. Asking myself the question, where is my joy for others to find joy in Jesus? And you know, I found it lacking. And maybe you do too. Let's put this in really practical terms. I mean, let's say tomorrow you, you personally, let's say tomorrow you discovered the cure for the coronavirus. And you responded, yeah, it's kind of a private thing. I really, I really don't want to share it. I really don't want to get that out there. No, no, no. If you found that tomorrow or think of a cure for any other uh, disease, I mean, you would email it, you would tweet it, you would post it, you'd share it, you'd get it out, you'd call the media, you'd go to the hospital with it. You would get that cure out. When the life of Jesus Christ moves from your head to your heart and you truly know him, he changes you. You acknowledge you have the ultimate cure. You have it. And fear of failure, fear of death, fear of embarrassment and loss, they begin to kind of slough off and fall away as the pure spring of joy, the floodgates open And you can't help but want others to find this same joy. It's not a duty to share it, but a delight. If your spiritual life is dead, so is your desire to share it. It's alive and well. If it is alive and well, to some degree, you'll want others to have it and hopefully grow the degree of that desire you have for others to have it. It's one of the tests John gives us here. This fellowship is for sharing. But here's the final one this morning. It's for uniting as well. It's for uniting us as well. Why can we still study the Bible today and this letter of 1 John and get something out of it? Because there is a common factor There's a uniting power in the fellowship we have with God. I mean, it's the reason I love to read old uh, theologians. Have you ever read an old book, an old theologian, a Christian book, uh, maybe Pilgrim's Progress, something like that even? I love to read them because I'm always surprised when I read it and go, this feels so contemporary. I mean, the problems they're describing are my problems hundreds of years later. And the solution they're giving is the solution I need. You ever done that? That's what John is doing here. He's saying, I have experienced a true, common, uniting fellowship. And I know I know it. So I can write a letter that will even judge your fellowship, assess your fellowship to be either true or false. It's common. It's uniting. But we don't like that. How dare someone we might think, speak into my spiritual life or question me or or, or call me out of my sin. My spirituality is my own. That's not what John's saying here. And that's actually how human community is destroyed, thinking it's just me and Jesus or that no one can speak into your life. The great truth is that the objective God is the same God who gives the same subjective experience to all believers. 
so that we can look at each other and go, as John does, you have to have joy to be a follower. You need to have a desire to share it to be a follower. Same objective God gives the same subjective experience to all believers. It's the reason when I traveled to the Philippines some years back for a missions trip, and maybe you've gone on some to other cultures and countries as well, I had instant fellowship with those believers. I realized just meeting them with different language, different culture, different nation, I realized I had more in common with my brother in Christ in the Philippines around the world than my non-believing next-door neighbor. Truly knowing God is a uniting experience. This is how it works. This is how it works. The truths of verse 1 and 2, the objective truth, comes before the subjective fellowship and experience of knowing God. You have to go through the beginning of John's first two verses to get to three. The truths of the gospel for you at home, they have to make their way from your head to your heart. And when they do, they can explode like a fresh spring, freshwater spring inside of you. And complete joy, fellowship from God, has to come from both. What we know to be true and a subjective knowing him. So the question to, to close with today is, do you know him? Not just here, but do you know him here? So that your joy is growing and may even be a complete joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know you not just the t- objective truths about you, but the actual experience of really knowing you, whether we call that affections or emotion or deep conviction or a reservoir of joy. I pray that for our people today. Give us that joy in the face of whatever this week may hold with just an unprecedented time in our culture. And may we, as we draw on that spring water of Jesus Christ, become an overflowing water and spring to those around us. Christ, and we pray. Amen.